You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Before we get started, I do want to give a quick shout out to Kale and Abby Howell. I don't know if you were following their story, but they won the Hubs Food Fight. Uh, It's a It's an organization downtown that we support, and the food fight was raising money uh, for food, and they raised, I think, something like $14,500, something like that. Yeah, you can clap for that. But the real news is that we beat Simple Church. I'm just saying that out loud, right? Uh, Pound for pound, baby, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, Kale said earlier today, he goes, you know, it's it's not that I love winning. Just a hate losing, you know? So there we go. Hallelujah. Thank you, guys. That was awesome, awesome, awesome work. So it was, about, it was about 14 years ago or so, I gave what's called, what I call, the sermon that will never die. I call it the Lord Voldemort of sermons. Uh, and it was a sermon in which I said, Regardless of orientation, I would not deny baptism and I would not deny communion. I will not deny the sacraments to anyone. And for some, uh, after that worship service, it was one of the most important sermons that they've heard. It was very affirming and comforting to them. To others, uh, they were very clear that they were leaving the church that day. So uh, suffice it to say, it was called a regular Sunday in ministry. Um, the sermon that will, and I call it the sermon that will never die because it kept coming back up in like board of ordained, word to the wise, it kept coming up in board of ordained ministry meetings and clergy gatherings. And so I emailed the sermon to one of my professors in seminary. I said, you know, what, what, what do you make of this? And after he read it, he emailed me back. He goes, oh, can, do you mind if I use this in my ethics and preaching class this semester? And I was like, <laughs> don't mind if you do, you know. You know, I was like, I was feeling very, very good about myself. I was like, well, what, what really struck you about the sermon? And he goes, oh, well, it's a great source for how to and how not to preach on divisive topics. You know, I need the trumpet. You know, that felt good. Um, oh, did I fail to, to mention that I preached a very divisive sermon on Mother's Day? Yeah, that's the rub. Okay, so ain't nobody going to church on Mother's Day wanting to hear a very divisive topic, okay? Uh, it, was, it was a misstep I now know, and I should have known, that Mother's Day is not the day to open up something that might be divisive. But, but the sermon was useful for teaching, for good or ill, celebrations and warts and all. Scripture makes an interesting claim about itself in 2 Timothy. Uh, It says this, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for connection, uh, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Sometimes we best learn from God-inspired language, perhaps when it is a how-not-to guide. Today, we begin a new worship series called Unlectionary, Stories You've Never Heard But Always Hear. We're going to jump into some of those biblical stories that are not often preached or taught or maybe not even talked about. Now, let me begin by saying I've dedicated my life to reading scripture and teaching scripture. We have several disciple Bible study classes happening 
uh, throughout the week. But let me also say that there are some stories in Scripture that don't make God's Instagram, right? Now, there are some stories in Scripture that we know well. It's like when you, when you get dressed and you go to lunch with friends and you have a big party and you're seen. It's kind of like yesterday. We had a very big... So my friend Phyllis is here. Uh, we celebrated her 80th birthday yesterday uh, at a party. Yeah, you can clap for that. Yay, Phyllis. She's also here uh, uh, with Lori and Don. Uh, let me say, um, uh, if you leave today and you don't become best friends with Phyllis and Lori and Don, the problem is on you, not them. They're just fantastic people, and thank you uh, uh, for being here today. There are some scriptures that are like that. You know, they've dressed up, and they go to lunch, and they're seen, and they're visible, and they're beautiful, and they bring us comfort. And then there are the scriptures that are like the roll out of bed in 5 a.m. kind of scriptures where it's just not pretty and, and maybe a bit embarrassing, and, and you have to be very close to someone to see them roll out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. Now, more formally, we have what's called a uh, lectionary, and the lectionary is a three-year cycle that follows the heartbeat of the church, and we have a year A, a year B, and a year C, and there are scripture selections for each Sunday in the lectionary. We have an Old Testament reading, uh, a psalm, a New Testament reading, and a gospel reading. So you get kind of like four stories from which to choose when you're preaching, when you follow this heartbeat. And this heartbeat uh, with mainline Protestant churches and the Catholic Church is Advent, Christmas, Ordinary Time, and then Lent, and then Easter, and then Pentecost, and then again Ordinary Time. We are in Ordinary Time, which is why I'm wearing green. It is the color of the liturgical season. But here's the thing, not all of the stories from Scripture are in the lectionary. There are some that are not in there, and because they are not in there, they are sometimes forgotten and often not discussed. So let's jump into a 5 a.m. roll-out-of-bed Scripture today as we start this new series, Unlectionary, stories we've never heard but always hear. And this is from 2 Kings chapter 2. Verses 23 and 24. Elijah went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head. Go away, bald head. When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them. I know. Here we go. He cursed them in the name of the Lord, and then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Needless to say, I have a vested interest in how we interpret this text. So what, what do we do? What do we do with a story like this, right? As good United Methodists, we read scripture through tradition and reason and experience. So let's start with tradition. What has the church taught about this text and its history? What have religious thinkers thought about this. Now, there is a rabbinical tradition, and this is from the Robert Alter translation and commentary, which is very, very good, and it's called Neither Bears Nor Forest. And it says this, the early rabbis were so outraged by this story that they felt constrained to assert that it never really happened. Their formulation, Neither Bears Nor Forest, became idiomatic in Hebrew 
for a story of hogwash. Now, it may make you uncomfortable to think of a story in scripture that is hogwash, but the early rabbis, the earliest interpreters of the Hebrew scriptures were quite comfortable in interpreting this story in that way. And it reminds me of my grandmother, uh, my mama. She would tell me stories of the benzenickel or the bell's nickel. Do you know the benzenickel? The benzenickel uh, was a character or an entity that would visit your house after Christmas and it would meander about until Epiphany, just in case you started misbehaving after getting your Christmas presents. Don't judge me. Oh my gosh, I just felt, I felt the judgment. I mean, no, no, no. As a parent, I know exactly why this story exists, right? You know, you're good, you're behaving, you get your presents, and ho, 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 everything is there, and then you better keep being good past the 26th, right? Uh, at least until you get to school, so you can hand your kids back to the professionals, right? Um, the benzenickel would hang out just to make sure that you well behaved. Keep behaving, right? Keep. Be- she would also tell me stories of the Lugaru. Do you know the Lugaru? Uh, it's it's the the Cajun Wolfman, right? And she would say, "Don't go Lugaruing around," right? It was her way of saying, "Ain't nothing good happening after midnight," right? And as a parent, I know exactly why that story exists. Yes? So these stories, we understand why some of these stories as warnings, right? And some of these tales as warnings are told throughout the generation. So maybe the interpretation of this, this text is, hey, don't be a jerk. Especially to bald people. Because <laughs> they get you, right? Don't go lugarooing around, right? Beware the benzenickel. But of course, this is not the only, even though I'm okay with that interpretation, this is not the only interpretation of the story. Walter Brueggemann, probably one of the most influential Old Testament professors still teaching today, takes more of an experienced approach. What is the experience of this text to the Hebrew people? What is the experience of this text to us today? And this is what he says. Taken by itself, It seems inhumane or silly, depending on how seriously one attends to it. But in this chapter on authority with special relation to other texts, this incident clearly speaks about a prophet's authority. There's mockery by boys who do not know or fear Elisha's enormous authority. They are unaware that to mock God's prophet is to enter into a danger zone. The word of the prophet can bring blessing, but it is also a dangerous word as well. The prophet is not just a friendly guy, but one taken with profound seriousness. The devouring she-bears are clearly not just an accident of the wilderness. They are agents inscrutably summoned to implement the prophetic word of curse. Prophetic authority in Elisha is inscrutable and ominous and not to be treated lightly. As with all of these texts, this one is not easy to preach. (laughs) He goes on to say uh, that this story is a warning to the power and the principalities of those who might stand against God and God's prophets. This story is primarily, as Brueggemann puts it, concerned with prophetic succession. 
The Hebrew people had no precedent for this. They had Elijah, God's great prophet, who destroyed the altars and the priests of Baal. And then he was to be taken up by a chariot of fire. Well, what now? What do we do? How does succession work? He is without children. He's without friends. <laughs> How does this work? Elisha will be gifted with his mantle to take up the prophetic work and to continue his job. How do we understand this succession of power? How does this work? Can Elisha be trusted as the bearer of God's word? And as Brueggemann would say, yes. This story is meant to communicate Elisha's claim of authority as legitimate. And it sounds strange to our ears today, but this is a fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 26, verse 22. And it goes like this. I will let loose wild animals against you, and they shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock. They shall make you few in number, and your roads shall be deserted. Whew. But that's not the only interpretation of this story. We've had tradition. We've had an, an experience. Well, maybe there is a reasoned approach. And there is. There's a third school of thought around this text that pushes back against the other two. It says, yes, it did happen, but not to proclaim the awesome power of God. Rather, it is a warning for those who are irresponsible with the power that they have inherited. So, let's back up a bit. What's going on in this story? At the end of 1 Kings, Elijah goes up the mountain to experience God. And maybe you've heard that. This is a go-to-lunch-with-your-friends kind of a text. He was on the mountain, and there was an earthquake, and there was fire, and there was wind. But it said that God was not in any of these. And he heard the sound of silence, or, or the sound of sheer silence. And he wraps himself in his mantle, and he hears a question. Elijah, what are you doing? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah comes down the mountain after this experience, and the Lord God gives Elijah a command. He says, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And you shall anoint Elisha as a prophet in your place. And here's the thing, Elijah does none of this. He comes down the mountain, he hears God saying, not, not send Elisha after you, after your work is done, Elijah is to anoint him now, instead of his own power. In other words, God just said, I'm glad you met me in my office today, uh, we are considering an early retirement for you, Elijah, and we want you to train Elisha while you're here and then give him your keys before you leave. And this is what Elijah does. Elijah comes down the mountain and he finds Elisha farming. He says nothing to him. He takes off his mantle, throws it at him, and then walks away. That's not an anointing, my friends. He says nothing. And Elisha's like, uh, uh, so he puts like the oxen down and he goes and chases after Elijah. He goes, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This, and he kind of follows him around. And, and Elijah's like, what are you doing? Like Elijah's really bothered by this. 
And Elisha goes on and keeps doing his duties. And then in 2 Kings, as we turn the page, Elisha is right up on him. Hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing, Elijah? What are you doing? What are you doing? He goes, hey, give me a double portion of your power. What does Elijah say to him? He goes, of course. No, he doesn't say that at all. He goes, okay, look. God's about to call me and he's going to pick me up in a chariot of fire. He's going to pick me up in chariots of fire. If you see the chariots, then you'll get the power. If you don't see the chariots, you get nothing. Fair? And Elijah's like, yes, this is going to be great. And then what happens? The chariots of fire, swing low, sweet chariot. They come and pick up Elijah. And Elijah goes to heaven, and Elisha is saying, yes, I'm going to get a double portion of this power. And he does, and he gets Elisha's mantle, and he's ready to go. There are other people there, by the way. <laughs> and they, this is also, I think, hilarious. They come up to Elisha now, and they say, hey, um, should we go look for Elijah? <laughs> and they literally say in the story, because he might have fallen out of the chariot. <laughs> it's so great. You should, this is 2 Kings chapter 2. You should read this. It's a great story. <laughs> they literally say, like, should we go look after Elijah? He may have fallen out. It says it biblically, like, he might be in the valley of the mountains after the glory of the Lord. But what they're saying is, like, I don't think there are seatbelts, right? He may have fallen out. That was a big deal. Maybe we should go look for him. And Elisha says, no, don't. But then it says, they urged him incessantly. As a parent, you know what that's like. They urged him incessantly. So what did Elisha do? He goes, okay, fine. Go look for Elijah. So they send 50 men out. And after three days, they come back and they said, yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't know where he is. <laughs> and Elijah literally says, told you. Biblically, he says, didn't I say not to go? So his first act as a prophet is this wishy-washy, neener-neener kind of moment with these other prophets. Told you. Right? What power and authority to not come to an immediate decision and stick to it? Now, immediately after this, Elisha goes into a city, and their water is bad, and they are at death's door, and he cures them, he heals the water, he cleanses the water, and he saves the entire town. And on his way from that is when he meets these children who mock him. And he summons she-bears out of the woods to maul them because they made fun of him being bald. Side note, scripture says that Elisha was very hairy and Elisha was bald. So there's a little mm going on there, right? Do you not think I measure up? Do you not think I'm as tall as Elijah? It wasn't just get away, bald head. It was a dismissive act of his authority. So what are we to make of this? Are we to look at that first school of thought and say, ah, I mean, ah, I don't think that's the best interpretation. But I do think it is helpful and important and to recognize 
that even the Bible can be an idol, that if we treat every story with the exact same authority, we can put ourselves in a very dangerous place. The Bible doesn't, the Bible necessitates study and nuance and wrestling. Should we look at kind of the second school of thought? Should we interpret the story as God being almighty and don't mess with God's prophets? Well, perhaps, but that doesn't seem to be the God that Jesus communicated when he reached the least and the last. I think this third school of thought, at least it gives me hope. Can I say out loud that none of us are perfect? This third interpretation seems to suggest that God has chosen some really human and flawed characters to continue a divine story. Can I say out loud that we're not perfect? Can I say out loud that we're human and messy and irrational, but also amazingly compassionate, giving, and beautiful? Do we have the capacity to save an entire city by offering them clean water? Yes. Do we have the capacity to be reckless with our curses and to be apathetic towards those who are suffering? Also, yes. With God, we neither dismiss nor do we close our eyes and wander blindly. But with eyes wide open, with mindfulness of our neighbor, we wrestle because that's what it means to be in relationship. God loves us enough to desire our honesty and our questions and our wrestling. God loves us enough to proclaim, I go to prepare a place for you. God loves us to say, keep awake, you foolish generation. God loves us enough to say to thieves and prostitutes, today you will be with me in paradise. My dear friend, Reverend Jean Reeves, uh, who died not long ago, said, hmm, the older I get, I realize that God's most common refrain is, I guess I'll have to work with that. And thanks be to God. Amen and amen. Or maybe the point of the story is to not make fun of bald people. I'm okay with that. Let us pray.